Switch it up, Jenny. 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 Switch it up, switch, switch, switch it up, Jenny. Switch it up, Jenny. Switch it up, Jenny. Yes, switch it up. Switch it up, Jenny. Welcome to Switch It Up, Jenny. I'm Paulina, and today I have a very special person here. I couldn't make my normal 20-30 minutes, so I will have two series of a podcast with a wonderful woman whose name is Marjan. She's a digital artist, and what the digital art is, we'll learn in the second part of the podcast. But first, I want to talk about her incredible personality, her tough journey to the US escaping Iranian revolution, and historical background behind the power of Iranian women. I should say that I met several Iranian women in my life, and my overall impression about this woman that, first of all, as I told you already, I found them truly beautiful. And, uh, and secondly, I thought that uh, they are very, very ambitious women. And you know, it's funny that we meet today with you because in the recent last edition of uh, Le Monde Diplomatique, there was an article about Iranian women that was called Iranian women never deserve. That was a metaphor. They wanted to say, they wanted to point out how strong and persistent Iranian women are uh, in their fight for, for freedom. Um, and then I met you, and you know, when you were younger, you um, moved from Iran during the Iranian revolution, mm -hmm. so you took a courage, and I'm sure that wasn't an easy journey, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later. Then you came to New York, to, uh, to the U.S., to like completely different country, culture, everything. And then you made it here, and now you are one of those pioneers of di digital painting. So looking at you, I can say, yes, they are ambitious, persistent, and everything what they were talking about in the article. So what do you think? Is, it, is that right? Is, is, what yeah. is your impression? I, I, well, I definitely think that, uh, you know, Iranian women do have uh, a history of being um, sub oppressed, but at the same time being very strong. I mean, if you look at the ancient origins of the country, uh, the Persian royal army in ancient times had women fighters. So the, the, the admiral of the Persian fleet during the Greek Wars was a woman, Artemis. Uh, there were other generals that served in the uh, Persian army in ancient times. Panteo was one of them, under Cyrus the Great. So <clears throat> Iran has had this history of strong, brave women. In fact, it's been argued that the word Amazon itself, or the female fighters, comes from the ancient Persian word Hamazon, which means fighter. Even though the Amazons were more spread through Central Asia and even parts of Eastern Europe, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, many were also roaming territory that was you know, part of the Persian Empire. So I think the country has always had this history of very strong women, women in government, uh, the last four leaders of the Persian Empire prior to the Arab Islamic invasion were women. So women could even rule, you know, as empresses in, in, in uh, Persia. So there is this history, but then of course there's this history of uh, the oppression of women and their rights, which uh, really was enforced on the country with the Islamic invasion, and then it sort of persisted with subsequent uh, dynasties uh, that enforced it. 
And so that sort of brought us to the 20th century. And, and in the 20th century, Iran was very similar to Turkey, where you had a strong leader like Reza Shah, who attempted to modernize and westernize the country. And one of the first things that is similar to Ataturk in uh, Turkey. And one of the first things that Reza Shah did is he, he banned the veil so women could be unveiled. They didn't have to you know, walk around, come mm -hmm. from head to toe. And uh, slowly, and the Shah's, uh, and the Reza Shah's son, the, 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 the last Shah, uh, gave women equal rights in 1961, which is actually the year I was born. And so women had equal rights. When I grew up in Iran, uh, I went to school with boys, which is impossible now. I, we went swimming in the Caspian Sea with my father and my brothers. You can't do that now because the beaches are segregated. Uh, my mother wore a mini skirt. My grandmother wore skirts that came up to her knees. Um, so we didn't we didn't have an Islamic upbringing on that level. We were part of a very progressive, secular, modern country in the Middle East. And I think that even after the Islamic invasion and uh, the Islamic revolution in 1978-79, I think that, the, that many of the people in the country uh, retained you know, some of that uh, secularity and some of the advances that had occurred during the 20th century, which is probably why uh, Iranian women, even till this date, are at the forefront of fighting for their rights in a way that is far more organized and structured and uh, well-developed than, let's say, elsewhere in the region. You know that, yes, that's how you can characterize Iranian women, but their fight is very personalized and individual, and that's why probably it's difficult for them to, to win this fight. Do you agree? Or yeah, I, they, have, they have, of course, to have to... I mean, I, you know, I was, I was raised in a very, very progressive secular family, but even I had to deal with the fact that maybe not, not everything I was doing was being taken as seriously as what my brothers were doing, you know. So I'm saying even in the most ideal secular progressive sort of a family, there was still this, this sense of um, that, you know, I was encouraged to be a good student, I was encouraged to do art, I was encouraged to do all of these things. But I think that the, the undercurrent of it was so that I'd make a great wife for somebody and mm -hmm. become a great mother someday. Yeah. I, I don't think that, there w that my family was that serious about me actually becoming uh, what I became professionally. You know, I think they were a lot more supportive of my brothers doing that. But I think the idea with me is absolutely you should go to college and have a good job, but the priority is for you to get married and have kids. And um, so, yes, the battle is, of course, there's the legal, social, cultural battle that Iranian women have to fight. But I think they all have to fight, like you said, this individual battle, uh, which is about, you know, I have as much agency as a man in this world. You know, it's, it's really about agency. Mm -hmm. You know, not just, oh, I'm allowed to go to school or I'm allowed to have a job, but to, to have the same agency as a man when it comes to everything, from work to life to adventure to sex to everything. You know. Going back to revolution, so how old were you when you, you moved from there? And I was 17 and uh, when the revolution happened, and then I moved to the U.S. when I was 18, uh, September of 1979. So how was it? How, how was the, uh, this whole transition? It was a very painful and traumatic experience because on many levels I was literally watching uh, the whole country fall apart. And uh, the violence, uh, especially by the revolutionaries, 
really was um, horrifying to me because, and, and that's actually something I wrote. Uh, I, I wrote the whole story of a massacre that I watched by the revolutionaries in my piece shot in Iran. And, it, and it's, um, it, it really was a very, very violent uh, revolution. And even after the revolution, actually before the revolution, it was less violent. I think that the, when the street protests were happening, it was, the, there, there was occasionally gunfire, but nothing compared to what happened when um, the government actually collapsed. You know, and, and then they started to set the city on fire, and then there were armed armed uh, you know, armed groups running around everywhere. There was a lot of looting, there was killing. If they didn't like you, they would just shoot you in the face. It, it was it was just the total breakdown of law and order, you know. And it's it's hard because because people don't you know, people don't quite process it. You don't quite process it when it happens, you know. And uh, and it happens very fast where suddenly you're like well, it's not going to be that bad. And then you walk outside and there's explosions and smoke from tear gas and gunfire sounds everywhere and you just don't know what to do. So th these situations get really surreal, in, in my opinion. And in, there's, there's a part of you that's basically detached from everything. A part of you is just, I'm not here and this isn't happening. But the truth is you're there and it's happening and it has an effect on you, which you then have to deal with later. And so what did you do? I uh, I didn't I didn't uh, I I think I shut down <laughs> I, I shut down that's what I did I didn't really uh, I didn't want to feel anything so I just kind of withdrew and became very detached which I think is a survival mechanism for everyone and um, when I came to uh, you know when I arrived in New York I I don't think I quite understood that maybe I wouldn't see everybody in my family. So you left alone? Yeah. I was the first person to leave. And then my mother and my younger brother followed uh, three months later. And um, so when I arrived in New York, it, it, it was just to, to uh, you know, go to college and also get out of there. It was, it, was, it was crazy. I mean, you know, I literally had to go from that to sitting in class two days later. You know. uh, but I think that that's also how my... Uh, career path happened because I was at I was at Near Tech in nineteen seventy nine and one of the teachers there had created the world's first paint program which she drew with a mouse called images. And uh, so I was introduced to technology and uh, I fell in love with it. And and uh, for me I think it also was like a way of way of forgetting about all these regressive forces that had destroyed my country of origin. And, and it was about moving forward. It, it was about technology. It was about the future. And I threw myself into it. I completely threw myself into it, like, take me! Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I was, I was trying to escape so much. Not physically escape, but also mentally, you know, escape mm -hmm. uh, the, the difficult experiences and the traumatic experiences. So somehow serendipity got me into the right track. And on, on many levels, I think the, the, the and, and computer technology back then was really hard. And uh, I found I was good at it. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, I was good, I know, I mean, yeah, I was good at it. I didn't have problems with it. I wasn't scared of it. I could learn it. I could make things with it. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I used to think that maybe it had to do with the fact that I wasn't educated in, in this country. I had a very good, solid background in math and science and things of that kind. So maybe like the Russians, <laughs> you know, yeah. it was easy for me. And everybody was like, 
oh, you're not afraid of it? And I'm like, no, why, why are people making such a big deal out of computers? To me, it was really easy. Like, I couldn't understand why it was such a big deal to people. But you know what? I think it's, it, it doesn't even matter uh, where you're from Iran, from Russia, or from anywhere. I think that the fact that you had a different background and you are now in the, in the situation that is unknown for you uh, made you become more efficient right. you just have to you just have to because you are in a new circumstances you have to learn to to survive to 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 succeed and everything but you know what why it is especially important what you you've just said I think nowadays when we have this situation with uh, refugees mm -hmm. and there are a lot of talks and people who are afraid that these young people who come to a, to a new country, new culture, they will be so traumatized that they, they will become s like a, a bad people, some, someone no, doing crime. No, I, 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 I disagree. I, I ended up uh, being the exact opposite. My younger brother who passed away, sadly, he, he uh, became a um, world-renowned scientist and he was responsible for facial recognition and machine learning. You know, a lot of the face tagging at Facebook used, used the research that he did, and he was a senior scientist at JPL at the time of his passing. So he made significant contributions to Silicon Valley and technology in the U.S. and also to NASA, JPL. Um, you know, I myself have, you know, made minor contribu contributions as a digital artist. But I think that for all of us it was the same thing. It was, uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's, it's interesting because I was reading this uh, article that Harvard did on genius. You know, and you bring up the refugee trauma thing, and I, and I feel like it's really important to bring up this yeah. article that yeah. Harvard did. Harvard did a study of geniuses in art, science, technology, in all fields. And they discovered that there were three traits that geniuses in all fields throughout history had in common. And the three traits were that they were all without exception traumatized somehow that there was always trauma in their story at some point. <laughs> so that was number one. They had some kind of trauma. Number two, they had the ability to work without uh, rewards. So they were able to spend inordinately large amounts of time learning or developing their field without necessarily receiving accolades or rewards. So they knew how to work without instant gratification or instant rewards. And number three was that they, they were obsessive, but not in a way that drove them crazy. <laughs> yeah. which, I, which was like a whole other problem, because a lot of times you can be obsessive and hardworking and traumatized, but end up with all sorts of mental health issues. So, th th and that was perhaps the most complicated part, was that, that somehow these people figured out a way to not go insane with those three things. And I thought, no, that's pretty much it. So I, I do actually agree that refugees, to a large extent, made America great. No, I mean, if you look at American history, you know, the Irish that arrived here, they were coming from famine and mass starvation, you know. When they arrived here, they had lost loved ones back in Ireland to starvation. They had lost family members and children on the ships on the way to here. So they arrived just as traumatized as Syrian refugees may be today. But, you know, they worked hard and they contributed greatly to the advancement of this country and making America great. Yeah, yeah. And thank you very much for bringing this... Uh, this the Harvard study. Yeah. The, the study, <laughs> yes. Because previously, in my previous podcast, I, I uh, mentioned this because there were many articles about this study and uh, I, I... It is interesting, indeed, and people don't think about it. And 
you, there's something to it because from my own experience, you know, sometimes, I mean, being traumatized like that and, you know, I've had a lot of painful losses and sometimes I think that when you have a lot of painful losses, it does kind of interfere with your ability to have pleasure in life. I mean, I would say that's the downside. You know, the things that make most people happy don't always make you happy because, you, you know, you're always carrying the sadness. But I also think that that's sometimes what compels you to, uh, to, to work hard without necessarily seeking immediate rewards. You know, you can deal with delayed gratification you yes. know, because you're just not that driven by pleasure the way other people are. And, um, and sometimes I think that, you know, I think Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, you know, he, he wrote that whole book about, you know, meaning is more important in life than happiness. And I think that when you've been really scarred, you understand that, you know, that what you strive for isn't happiness as much as meaning. Meaning and purpose. Yeah. Those two things become more important, and you learn to value it. So, and I think that creates a more substantial life. It doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you have to be rich and famous. No, you could have a very quiet life, you know what I'm saying, in yeah. your own way with meaning and purpose. But again, happiness uh, is not necessarily being rich and, and famous, right? Yeah, so exactly. having this purpose make, can make you happy. Having the purpose gets you out of bed in the morning. And, 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 it, and it gives you that sense of uh, you know, knowing that there is a purpose to everything you're going through, good and bad, that there is a, there, there is a narrative to it. There is a story in there somewhere. <laughs> It's so true. Yeah. You know, I uh, have another um, question about Iranian revolution. What interests me is that it's, it, it wasn't like a, a, a many other revolutions. It was actually a little unpredictable because um, the nation was going through a very a pretty wealthy period and uh, there wasn't any financial crisis or anything. So. What is your opinion? How, why, what was the actual I, I, reason? I, you know, I was, when I was there, this is, well, first of all, this is what I tell everybody. I, I was there, I, I, was, I was in college actually before 79 in the U.S. And I went back in the summer of 78. And uh, if you ask me in the August of, or August or September of 78, who, do you know who Ayatollah Khomeini is? I would say I have no idea who he is. And, and most of the people I knew were like that. So it, sometime around September and October, I discovered who Khomeini was through BBC News. And the next thing you know is, of course, all the Western magazines and newspapers, Newsweek, Time, this and that. And then, you know, you had, like I remember in, in September and October, uh, I read this piece that, uh, and, uh, that a member of the Carter administration in the U.S. had described Khomeini as a saint. And I remember looking at his pictures and going, he doesn't look like a saint. He looks like a really angry man. Oh, yeah. At least with Gandhi, he was always smiling. Mm -hmm. But I was like, this guy is not Gandhi. I could tell just looking at the picture. And I was going, why are they, why are they promoting him so much? And then he ended up in, in Paris in that tent outside of Paris in some suburb of France. And you know, all the world's uh, reporters, all the pictures and videos in Iran were world-famous report, uh, reporters kneeling before him with a microphone. And in Iran, people would say, okay, so the, the, the less educated people didn't know any better, but they were going based on everything they were seeing. As far as they were concerned, this simple mullah from Iran 
had all the world leaders singing his praises and kneeling before him with a microphone. So to them, that made a big impression. So I always say, look, the West has to assume responsibility for playing a huge part in mm -hmm. elevating Romain. You know, uh, uh, Foucault, the French uh, philosopher, was uh, was siding with Romani and singing his, he of course apologized for it later, but I'm saying that even Western intellectuals, philosophers, reporters, government officials were all singing the praises of Khomeini. So, so you have to sort of go, what was that all about? Mm -hmm. Because he was a nobody, really. There were far more well-known dissidents, mm -hmm. Iranian dissidents than Khomeini, who had much greater followings over the course of many years, were much better known inside the country. So you have to kind of question that. And the, the thought that I had about, based on also my own research, I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy theories, and I try to stay away from conspiracy theories. But we do know that uh, Brzezinski and the Carter administration also had formed the Green Beard Doctrine, or the Green Curtain Doctrine, which was to stop Soviet expansion with Islam. They used a very similar tactic with Catholicism in Poland, for instance. As a, you know, with solidarity and the Catholic Church, and some people even suggested the Pope, they, they elected a Polish Pope <laughs> yeah. specifically to bring down, you know, uh, Soviet, uh, uh, the Soviet bloc countries uh, with Catholicism, and that the strategy with, with it was with Islamism south of the Soviet Union. So, and and you know, the Shah at the time that he left the country had advanced leukemia, and you know, you can't go to. You can't be the king of a country who gets checked out twice a year by the world's top doctors in the U.S. and suddenly come up with, you know what I'm saying, mm -hmm. advanced leukemia. Obviously, it was known for some time that he had leukemia, and, and, and doctors in the U.S. knew it because that's where he had his checkups. So I think that the West knew the Shah was dying, and they thought that the country was... Keep in mind, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan around the same time. Too. The region was highly volatile. There was a cold war between U.S. and USSR. Khomeini, as an Islamic leader, seemed like the best defense against communism. And but you know what? Uh, it, it destroyed the region. You look at the Middle East today, and uh, you know it's like you look at Afghanistan. If you look at pictures of, you know, it's the same in Iran. Like. If you look at photographs from the Middle East, from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, if you were to look at photographs from Afghanistan, from Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, you would not see all these people in veils. <laughs> you know, this, this was in the 1950s and 60s. If you were to look at photographs of women from any one of these countries under pressure from Islamism, most are wearing a headscarf. Yeah. You know? And, and so this, it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sad thing because the same thing happened in the U.S. because, uh, you know, with uh, religiosity both in Europe, Middle East, and the United States was used as a weapon and defense by capitalism against communist expansion. But with the fall of the Soviet Union, it's now become this out-of-control disaster in the East and the West where people are going, Wait a minute, we were more secular in the 1930s and 40s all over the world. It's interesting that you bring Soviet Union and bridge these situations because uh, there was another, another article in, in Foreign Affairs about um, Iran and they say, well, this, this regime uh, is very much uh, can follow the, uh, the, what happened with Soviet Union when it's crashed. 
So this regime cannot just like stay I was, for I was actually just th saying that I think Syria might turn out to be the Afghanistan of Iran the way Afghanistan was for the Soviet Union. Because the country right now is, is uh, you know, a million homeless children. You know? This is a country that runs free clinics for Hezbollah in Lebanon, but won't house, you know, homeless children in Iran with money that belongs to the people of the country. And, and of course, you know, the war in Syria, the war in Iraq, the run, it, running a military that's running a regional empire ultimately bankrupted the Soviet Union. Running a regional empire is bankrupting Iran, too, to some extent. So in, in terms of the point you made, I agree. Like, even the U.S. really can't maintain its uh, world empire, if you think about it. It's really bankrupting us. No country can. And I think it's time for uh, people to realize that these empires uh, are, well, first of all, these empires feed the military industrial machine all over the world that makes money off weapons, <laughs> the sale of weapons, and war, period. And we really can't afford to be engaged in war at this stage because we're facing catastrophic food shortages and water shortages all over the world from climate change. We're looking at overpopulation. We're looking at so many different ecological, environmental, weather-related, industrial problems. And then you look at the fourth industrial revolution and how many jobs are going to be replaced by artificial intelligence and robotics. So, you know, to me, it's almost like, look, the house is burning down. Let's not start new fires. <laughs> you know, I think both East and West have to withdraw from wars and uh, the, the military industrial complex. And, uh, you know, so will Iran become like the Soviet Union and eventually bankrupt itself? By with these uh, proxy wars and you know, regional empire and global empire, it's uh, there's very great likelihood. I don't want to uh, finish with this like negative <laughs> note. <laughs> let's let's let's, let's in the end talk about something positive. Something um, positive. So you are here now in the U.S. Uh -huh. and you are a U.S. citizen. Uh -huh. You are like part of this country. Yes. But in the same time. You are also part of, of, of Iran, you, of, of your um, country of origin, right? Yes and no. Okay, tell because, me. Because, you know, I, 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 was, I, I often tell people this, that the country that I remembered as Iran was a very different country than what Iran is today. You know, like the country, like I feel like the Iran that was my Iran was the Iran under the Shah, you mm -hmm. know, which was a very different place. And, and the sort of, the, the, the whatever, whenever I see pictures or videos of Iran today, it's, and that sort of, that, it just doesn't look to me like the country that I remember. So it's, um, I don't know, I feel like sometimes, I think everybody in exile has to deal with dual identity on that level that you brought up. But I think in my case it's weird because I feel like my other ident identity ended in 1979. Like that country ended, but the 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 the, uh, the soul is there. The soul is there. But I also, whenever I a lot of the things that I see from Iran, though I don't identify with. You mm -hmm. know, I don't remember it as something that I would have considered as indigenous. But yeah, the soul of it is there. So I I do feel as if part of me is uh, very connected to the culture and the land. Even though, you know, I haven't been there since uh, 1979. Next time we'll talk with Marjun about digital art, animation and many more. It was Switch It Up Jenny. Find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Mm -hmm.